Freedom of Information docs expose financial corruption the Canberra way. And to avert war, Australia must assert sovereignty. Coming up in this week's episode of The Citizens Report. Welcome to The Citizens Report. It's 25th of May 2023. I'm Robert Barwick and I'm joined today by Citizens Party founder and leader Craig Isherwood. Welcome Craig. Yeah, thanks Robbie. In this week's show we're going to expose on the show here something that's in our latest magazine, Craig, some very fascinating explosive documents that have been released through Freedom of Information relating to ASIC and it just confirms everything that you, you know, suspected about how it operates. Um, which is why we have such a terrible problem with white-collar crime in Australia. And we're going to do an important update on the Assange campaign, which is about our sovereignty as a nation, but show examples of why, when we don't have sovereignty, we're finding ourselves lurching into a war of annihilation. You're up in Sydney on Saturday at the rally, big rally. Yep, a lot of of actual um, exciting activity around the Assange campaign, so hang on for that. Um, Before we begin, just remember... Important shows that we do, so help us get them out. Like the show, um, share the show, uh, subscribe, and when you do subscribe, make sure you ring the um, bell icon. Uh, comment, engage, you know, the comments are very important um, down below, and also please donate to the campaigns because that's how we do everything. We're the only political party in Australia entirely funded by the Australian people. And people are donating, Robin. Thanks very much for your donations. It does help to make sure you have you have six airline flights. Six flights last week. Last week's, and I mean, I thought that was a bit much. <laughs> after a while, you get sick of flying. I can tell you, but you know, Robbie had to go to Cloncurry, Mount Isa, Tully, Ingham, Brisbane, Sydney, and back here again. So yeah. that's not a cheap exercise. Quite an effort, but very, very, very important, as you'll hear. Uh, as to what it means for us being able to push forward the policy on the postal bank. So please make a donation. Any amount will receive you. Send it back. It's coming up to the 30th of June. And I don't know whether people know this or not, but you can make donations up to $1,500 that are fully tax deductible. Yeah. Right? And that's a very important thing. So if you've got a bit of extra cash, not that many people necessarily have a lot of extra cash, but put it to good use. Make a donation, please. No, exactly. Um and Craig, we're not sponsored by anyone on this show, but I, no. <laughs> because I did take six flights last week, let me just um, uh, do some product endorsement. Uh, Qantas is still garbage, <laughs> and they feed you chicken scratchings. Probably that's probably good for me, but um, still, it's a bit rich for what you pay for it. Um, and I well, still they just made a mega profit. Right? I still, I know, and I still like. Uh, I've started, as you know, flying Rex Airlines lately, and um, they're actually pretty good. Uh, so thank God for them sometimes. Uh, all right, enough of that. Let's move on. We've got a few short updates first before we get to the main show. Um, I want to start on a sadder note, and then we'll get onto happy notes, but we lost a good friend last week, uh, Tony Pun, who's one of the leaders of the, uh, was one of the leaders of the Chinese community in Australia. Um, we, we report on the back of the alert service. We'll put those photos up. But Tony was an incredible guy. Um, I got to meet him a couple of years ago for the first time. He reached out to us um, 
our, our channel is known for the position we take on China, which has been very unique in Australia for a long and time. And consistent, I might add, Robbie. And consistent. And we never did it to pander to the Chinese community because we hardly knew anyone in the Chinese community. It wasn't about that. It was about standing up for Australia's sovereignty and not, being, not letting ourselves be talked into a war against our best trading partner. And also because of our support for the BRICS countries. Yep. I mean, I attended a BRICS conference in Moscow, a civil BRICS conference in, 19, in 2015, right before Russia became too on the yep. nose, as it has become to a lot of Western people these days, which is absolute crap. But as but, the war talk on China got really crazy and our, part, our channel and our party really combated it and tried to expose this stuff... The people who are the people who knew the people in Australia who knew the best that we were telling the truth are the people who knew China the best. And how might they have known China? Well, they're Chinese Australians, and they knew that the politic body politic in Australia had gone mad. They're they're, they're, they're not communists. They're they're probably not particularly enamoured with the CCP, but they know China's not Nazi Germany. They'll, most of them are very proud of what their mother country is doing economically, etc. And suddenly everyone's going mad around them and they're finding themselves getting bashed in the street by racists whipped up by lies coming out of America and Britain and the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. And, and so, Channel 9, what I am. And Channel 9, we'll get on them in a minute. And Tony Pun reached out to us. Now, Tony's story was um, amazing. He came to us, he was Malaysian Chinese. He came to Australia in 1964 he became the chief scientist at St Vincent's Hospital in Sydney and he became a prominent person in the um, ethnic communities councils of Australia trying to combat that kind of white Australia, the, the, the leftovers of the white Australia type racism. Um, uh, here's the guy that when there was the Tiananmen Square incident in 1989 and Bob Hawke famously went on television and gave a, a, um, a crying speech about it with predicates that mostly proved to be wrong later. But nevertheless, it was a big deal at the time. Tony is the person who suggested to Bob Hawke that he should allow more Chinese-Australian students to stay in Australia. And so a lot of professionals, the, a lot of the, the, the Chinese professionals in Australia um, owe their, their living here to that. Um, uh, he was, we've got a photo of him here with uh, Gough Whitlam. Um, he knew all these people. He like every, I, um, I told you this the other day, my... I often take my phone calls outside on my, my house um, and um, my kids often hear me yelling at people on the phone, especially one person in particular who shall remain nameless. <laughs> um, I said to the kids when I was talking about Tony Pun, I said, if you, the times you've heard Dad outside on the phone laughing his head off, I was probably talking to Tony Pun because he's a very funny guy. He used to tell me lots and lots of very funny stories. Um, he met the Queen three times <laughs> and it, it, to him that was a big deal only because he... As a as a Chinese Australian, he actually was he actually found the pomposity of British royalty quite humorous, but he liked the fact that they, that because he'd made a certain rank in society as the chief scientist of St Vincent's etc., he had to be invited to these things. Um, so he's a decent old guy. I put a photo up here of the last time I saw Tony. We had dinner uh, a month or so ago um, in Sydney. You can see me there sitting next to um, David McBride, um, and then two two down from David McBride is Kingsley Liu. Our Senate candidate for New South Wales, who Tony introduced us to, actually. Um, and there's Tony, second from the left. So, anyway, he was 77 when he passed away. He'd just had a meal at a, at a, at a community function, and he, he slipped into unconsciousness at the train station, actually. So he didn't suffer at all, which is great. Um, 
but he's the sort of person that if he was a if he was a white Australian Craig, he'd probably be a lot with everything he accomplished, he'd be a lot better known. Um, but he should he deserves to be known, and you know I just. Um, I just loved his courage, his sense of humour, and his willingness to speak out on many, many things. Mm. And um, a lot of a lot of the political class, especially in Sydney, know this guy. So, rest in peace, Tony Pun. Um, all right, let's keep going because just a few other updates quickly. Uh, we've launched effectively, or on the cusp of Jan Pakalis's campaign in Fadden. Yep. Now, you and Elisa did a live cross to Jan last week when she was organising in Fadden. You've got this great yeah, poster this, here. Yeah, it's late, Jan. So the election date is when? The 15th. Uh, 15th of July. It's right. been announced uh, the writs don't get issued till the 12th of June, but then once once those writs get issued, it's one month. So that's about seven weeks from about now. About seven weeks. We're fully yep. campaigning now. People are going to see particularly in that area, you're going to see a lot of media, social media coverage on Facebook, on Google. Yeah. Uh, you know, we're going to be campaigning specifically on two issues because we want people to understand the most two important issues in this country are, first of all, the public post office bank, and secondly, stop World War Three, stop AUKUS. We don't need a war with China, and they're the most two important issues yeah. that we want to get across the electorate. So, yeah, Jan's very excited about it. As she said last week, I've become 17 again. Uh, <laughs> so right. she's got a lot of energy and she's going to be doing... We'll, we'll do crosses from her. So we, don't we, do, we won't have one this week, but no. we'll have one next week um, of her <coughs> organising in that electorate. Yeah, so if you live in the vicinity, get along and contact yeah, let us know. You, get, along, get involved in the campaign. If you're involved in Fadden, let us know, please. We'd love to hook you up. There's going to be a lot of on-the-ground activity. There'll be door-knocking, there'll be table sites, there'll be leafleting, there'll be all sorts of different things. And what you can do is you've heard what Craig said about the two issues we're going to take on, a, a um, post office people's bank and the we don't need AUKUS, we don't need war. Absolute no to those things. Um, if you're a local and you have a bit of an insight into how they, you know, especially relate to the local circumstance of Fadden, you know, help Jan out, let her know so she can speak to that, bring that message to them. We use these campaigns um, as a vehicle to educate the public in the context of a campaign, right? If your post office, not post office, if your bank is shut down in the last two years, Please let us know. I yep. mean, we're going to go and do the research and try and find that anyway through our contacts. Yep. But let us know. What has it meant for you? Because it'd be great to bring that local content into this election campaign because yep. it does affect people yep. very much. All right. And then the last quick update. <laughs> These were supposed to be quick updates, but anyway. The last quick update, Craig, is I just want to... You and Elisa covered it quite well, actually, last week. The, the real significant breakthrough in the bank hearings in Cloncurry and Ingham... I was there. That's why I took the flights. Look, it was. I came back last week, this week, and described it as a great leap forward, right? Or a giant, not great leap forward. That's the that's, giant that's, that's the Chinese one. A, a giant leap for mankind and a giant leap for the postal bank idea, right? Because um, we'll put this up on the screen. The ABC covered the the hearings in this um, very important article, and they devoted half the article to the public bank solution, and. More than half. There were five senators present for the hearings. Three of the five were openly advocating a public bank. The Greens Senator Penny Allman Payne, uh, LNP Senator Jared Rennick, and One Nation Senator Malcolm Roberts. And I know the other two probably aren't opposed. Well, I won't, I won't talk for the Labor Senator, but um, I know Matt Canavan, the chairman of the inquiry, is um, you know, coming around to this idea as well. The what the hearings showed, though, and the fact that we had forced Westpac to backflip before these hearings, 
Westpac has pulled the rug out from under the other banks because if Westpac can take eight branches that the week before were, were supposed to be considered unviable, therefore they must close and just in order to avoid having to appear at the hearings. This is what Westpac said, we don't want to come to your hearing, we're keeping the branches open, right? And if Westpac could wave a magic wand and keep those branches open, which means suddenly they are viable, they were viable all along, and if that's true, what does that mean for all the other branches that are shut down around Australia? And they made a massive boo-boo, especially in Cloncurry, because Cloncurry has these the five biggest cattle, family cattle barons in Australia, the massive mining interests, etc. There's billions of dollars in that Westpac branch just from the cattle industry. Billions of dollars. And the people involved, one of them, one of the cattle barons, Don McDonald, testified at the hearing, and he said, if this branch isn't viable, none of them are. Um, there's no, this makes no business sense whatsoever. And once the senators start getting a sniff of that, then the question becomes, well, if the banks en masse, the big four banks are colluding to close branches where, which are totally viable and therefore it makes no business sense, what is motivating that? And it's either incompetence, and that's too easy to assume, oh, or it's an agenda. Mm-hmm. And as they start to get un, a bit of an insight, this is an agenda here to force us digital, etc., the pushback's going to be huge. And I will just, um, I'll end on this the, this part of the update, the update on this. Uh, when ANZ appeared at the Ingham hearing, this was ANZ's first appearance. Now, all the big four have appeared except CBA. When ANZ appeared, the all the senators sat up straighter. They rolled up their sleeves. <laughs> they took their gloves off. They got a gleam in, the, gleam in their eye and they went after it. Like the... Having a big four bank on the stand made them really bring out the big guns, right? It was something to be a sight to see. These senators have the taste of blood. They want to now do what politicians should have been doing to these banks all along. And it was this inquiry that's made it happen, all right? Yep. So, look, it's, it's in a very important process. And the regular viewers of this show, pat yourself on the back. You are responsible for us getting this inquiry up, and it is working a treat. Right? Right. And, and it's going to keep doing that. just want to make a reference to what was written in the lead of the alert service, Robbie, because I found it very inspiring. And that's when people come up to you, oh, you'll never get, they'll never let you do it, they won't make yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. Right? President John F. Kennedy made a really incredible speech on the 10th of June, 1963. Right? He said, and this was, he was actually relating to the question of peace, which would say this is uh, a response to both the issue of no war, but also the issue of how do you get a postal bank to support sovereignty. He said, firstly, most give up the fight before they even start because they think that peace or our mission is impossible. But, said Kennedy, our problems are man-made, right? Our problems with the banking system are man-made. Therefore, they can be solved by man. And, and man can be as big as he wants. No problem of human destiny is beyond human beings. Man's reason and spirit have often solved the seemingly unsolvable and we believe they can do it again. That's what people have to keep in mind with this yep. whole move towards having a national bank and actually reclaiming our sovereignty. It, it was taken down through economic rationalism, yep. the sell-off of the Commonwealth Bank, through a deliberate policy. That policy can be reversed and we can go in a completely different direction. And it's all willful. Here, here. Now, let's get on to the first news item of the day because it relates directly to this because we want a national bank, we want a people's bank because we want a better functioning financial system. And we're about to talk about how badly our financial system currently functions and why, and there's some new revelations that show that. So 
Freedom of Information documents expose financial corruption the Canberra way. Um, and Craig, ever since we've been on the ASIC case for the last few years, I've had this, I've had this um, mental image in my head about the, from the movie The Untouchables. Because um, in The Untouchables, the reason they had to be called The Untouchables is Chicago was corrupt from top to bottom. Yeah, politically and all everything. the cops yep. were on Al Capone's payroll. And so they had to set up a special branch of the cops that were untouchable, right? Um, and, and when the cops have been corrupted, then the criminals get to run the show. And, of course, the financial cop in Australia is um, uh, ASIC. But when you think about Al Capone and the, what they call the Chicago Way, that is nothing on what we're starting to get an insight into is the Canberra Way. Of financial corruption. So last week, you and Elisa talked about the the Price Waterhouse Cooper scandal, right? Which has now been even moved into Australian Federal Police yes. investigation. So this thing has escalated from trying to keep it in house under Ziggy Siskowski's <laughs> control has now escalated to Australian Federal Police because I mean, there's, there's, there's a, you know, this this is serious stuff here. This is the undermining of Australia's sovereignty again from the point of view of allowing tax evasion and all sorts yep. of things. But think about, think about the timing of the scandal, because you're talking about something that happened in 2014, and the reason I want people to think about that is because we have been part of a process of exposing financial corruption that really ramped up post-2018 with the Banking Royal Commission, and we've tried to keep that heat on. There was an inquiry into ASIC in 2014, but unfortunately it didn't go anywhere. The real, the real acknowledgement that there's a problem was 2018, the Banking Royal Commission, right? Because before that, what the, P, the PwC scandal shows, these, these people weren't, the people who work for PwC are not idiots. They were acting with what they felt was impunity. They thought they would get away with what they were doing. It probably never occurred to them that um, there would be, that, that they were so used to the, the, the political system interfacing with the financial system in a certain way they were so used to that, they thought, well, this is, this is standard operating procedure, right? And only now are these things being looked at by politicians who have experienced so much in the way of financial corruption, they know they can't sweep this stuff under the carpet anymore, right? And this has become a huge, huge scandal, which, by the way, once the, the more it blows up here, the more it's going to reverberate around the world, because PwC is one of these global ones, right? Mm. But it's fascinating that it came out of here because it's an example of the Canberra way. This big audit firm thought, well, we can just, we can just rip off the Australian taxpayer with impunity. That's what we've always done, right? So that's one example. Um, like I said, we've been looking at this, though, with, with the ASIC issue, right? Because um, uh, ASIC is the financial cop, and a lot of the corruption can only happen if the financial cop is on the crook's um, payroll. Um, and I want to say, I'm going to say something. I apologise in advance, but I'm going to say something. Cops have been in the news lately. ASIC is the financial cop that has tasered thousands of elderly Australians. That poor woman has died now mm. because some cop was trained to taser an innocent person and not, not be a proper policeman. I don't want to say more than that. I'm sure there's going to be legal stuff, etc. Let's talk about ASIC. Thousands and thousands and thousands of elderly Australians are ruined because this bastard of a cop, of a financial cop, lets financial crimes go unchecked, right? And that's why we've been on, this, on the warpath about this. The, the one measure 
two, since 2008 alone, 200,000 Australians, mostly retirees, have lost $40 billion in managed investment schemes, all of which have been registered with ASIC, right? 200,000 Australians have lost $40 billion. Caveat emptor, no more. Caveat emptor. Buy beware. beware, no more. We, you know, that's not our responsibility, says ASIC, it's buy beware. Um, the Sterling victims, Craig, we, we campaign on this a lot, and I'm leading to the, the explosive information. The Sterling victims, there's 130 people, mostly in, around Mantua in Western Australia, who face homelessness because they got embroiled in a scheme by people who should never have been allowed to run a scheme, and and they, they kept being sucked in after ASIC was receiving complaints about this scheme that it ignored. Now, ASIC's not solely liable. The, the West Australian government has a role in this. But in this case, ASIC was ignoring the complaints, right? So we have a collaborator um, uh, that, that, that we've worked with really well on quite a few campaigns now, the independent economist John Adams. And John Adams got involved in the Sterling campaign because a few years ago we ran the campaign on Sterling. We've got an inquiry up into Sterling and ASIC. John Adams got involved in that inquiry and from being involved in that inquiry, he was paying attention to what it takes to get ASIC to act on a complaint, right? Because he was watching this in the case of Sterling, they're getting these complaints and they're not acting on it. So John's trying to figure out what does it take to get ASIC to act on a complaint. He got some insights into that. At the time, he, was, he spent 50 grand of his own money and 18 months to investigate himself a case of corporate fraud in Australia, and the details aren't public yet, but, but he investigated himself. He compiled a 650-page dossier. I've seen the dossier. He famously calls it the package, and he took it to ASIC. He did all their work for them. He said, this is a case of corporate fraud in Australia. You must investigate. And he got an investigation. He actually achieved an investigation. Big tick. He got it. But in the process of doing that, he noticed that this is a real accomplishment to get ASIC to actually investigate something um, because their own figures show that ASIC investigates fewer than 1% of the complaints it receives. Fewer than 1%. No wonder we are the, we're known as the paradise for white-collar crime in Australia if the financial cop doesn't even investigate the crime, mm. right? So John Adams, last October, October 2022, wrote a report on that fact. He wrote a report, and it's known as the Adams Report. It got reported in the media, and it was about the... Um, the failings of ASIC uh, investigation and enforcement, right? Um, that report triggered two, not one, two parliamentary inquiries. Senator Andrew Bragg set up a Senate Economics Committee inquiry, which is ongoing, and Senator Deb O'Neill set up the Parliamentary Joint Committee on Corporations and Financial Services inquiry. So far, so good. John's, John Adams had achieved an ASIC investigation to his complaint, and two Senate inquiries. However, both of those things have been going nowhere. The ASIC inquiry has been really, really slow and dragged out, and we've been talking on the show um, for quite a while about, you know, I was encouraging people to call up and ask, why haven't they published your submission yet? So there was, a, there was a go slow seemingly on the ASIC inquiry, and John's invest, complaint to ASIC, which ASIC is supposedly investigating, has also been going nowhere. So what happened was in April, John Adams put in some freedom of information requests to ASIC. And the freedom of information requests, quite, he, wanted, he requested 
Every reference to him, John Adams, in internal ASIC communications, whether emails, telephone messages, etc., any time that he's referenced in three contexts, and the contexts were in relation to uh, the Senate inquiry into ASIC, in relation to his own compl- corporate fraud complaint that ASIC's supposed to be investigation, investigating and into his public commentary. He received 76 documents. They've actually reported there's hundreds of them. He received 76 documents. Four of them are actually quite explosive. So we're going to go through what they said. And the first one happened to relate to us. <laughs> so, and this is the most explosive, actually. We'll start with the, we'll start with the most explosive first for this reason. Um, we put out a press release, the Citizens Party, on the 6th of October 2022. And the press release was titled, Investigate ASIC Now. That went to ASIC's media department and they circulated it through ASIC. And the managing director of ASIC is a gentleman named Warren Day. In, the, in one of the documents John Adams received, it's an email from Warren Day to the national media manager Gervais Green replying to our press release. And our press release is quoting the Adams report. And Warren Day's quote comment on in his email was, "Be good if ENF could tell Adams his thing is no good soon, and ENF is enforcement." Now, what that is is the managing director of ASIC saying to, in response to the political side of what John Adams did, he was showing ASIC's bias against the thing that they were supposed to be doing in relation to the corporate fraud that John Adams had brought to them. Basically saying, we're not really interested in this case, someone should tell this guy that. Now, it's not that guy Warren Day's job to make that decision in that way. He was reacting to the publicity that John Adams was receiving and showing they weren't very happy about this and it'd be good if they could just tell this guy essentially to go away. That's Mm -hmm. what he's saying. And John's point is, look, this is... Um, this is bias. He goes, in a pre- he put out a statement on, uh, two days ago, John said, he goes, Mr. Day's comment displays a prejudicial bias to a 608-page report of alleged misconduct which makes serious allegations that thousands of Australians are victims of a major financial crime. Rather than be concerned with the financial welfare of the Australian people and the administration of justice, Mr. Day is more concerned with getting rid of professional analysts that expose sustained declines in ASIC's operational performance. It is highly alarming that prejudicial biases regarding live official investigations can be openly expressed by the most senior executive within an Australian law enforcement agency. So that was that one, and that's the one that related to us. Now, Craig, I built that up a bit too much. That actually wasn't the most explosive one. <laughs> I did go with that the first because that's the one related to us. Yep. This is the most explosive one. This actually one is, is, is significantly more serious. Um, another document relates to the same person, Gervais Green, who's the national um, media guy. Um, he, this is in an email to uh, ASIC's chief communications officer, Zoe Vialaris. Now, I'm going to read out the full email here. And this is in response to the Adams report and the publicity it's getting. He wrote, And the unfortunate fact is that the ABC online and news.com news sites are among the top five followed news sites in any month. So I don't want to appear to be minimising this issue. Fact is, it's a very negative story, without a doubt, and it really needs to be strongly and unequivocally refuted 
and counted at the next parliamentary committee hearing. Brackets. And I discussed this with Warren, Warren Day, yesterday, who said he was preparing and hoping for an opportunity to respond. Not my area, I know, but I suggested we arrange a Dorothy Dixer to make sure it's up front and as early and loudly as possible, end quote. A Dorothy Dixer, so when, when you have question time in Parliament, um, the two sides, the government opposition takes... takes it's, a, it's a stage question. It's a stage question. It's so the, the opposition asks yeah. real questions of the Prime Minister, right? When did you stop beating your wife kind of questions? The government side ask him, just how nice are you, Mr Prime Minister? Tell us how nice you really are. That's a Dorothy Dixer. It's in other words, you get a friendly get, person... To get a certain type of message yes. out. You, right, yeah, you, you're, you've got spin prepared. Yes, someone has to ask you a friendly person to do that. They, this email shows ASIC is talking about getting the oversight committee, the committee that's there to oversee what ASIC does, keep an eye on them, get someone on that committee to act as that stage person to ask the stage question. That is political collusion between the agency, the, right, the statutory regulator, and the political politicians oversight. on that committee. Who are supposed to have oversight. Who are, that is not on. This is not on. This is all, what you're seeing here, this is the club that has, here's ASIC, the failed financial cop. That's why it's under pressure like this. That's why there's two inquiries. And it thinks, those emails show, that it thinks it can set up this kind of stage stuff so it gives it an opportunity to rubbish this kind of analysis that's making it look, that's embarrassing it. Right, and I tell you what, that that didn't start in October 2022. This is the way you, you can tell by the way they act. This is the way these agencies have been acting and playing out for a long, long time, decade. That's why we have the mess that we have. That document is explosive, and the question will come up. I'm sure mm-hmm. if there's the politicians who are brave in the Senate, ASIC will go before Senate estimates next week. Someone should ask who did you plant a question on among the politicians? Um, I suspect it was someone on the Labor Party side, right? And we'll see if someone, if, if the truth comes out. This is an extraordinary admission through these freedom of information documents of how this agency is prepared to behave. Um, the two others um, showed the, the bias, though. One of them was um, on the 11th of October, the same, the, this guy, Gervais Green, just kept, he kept putting his foot in his mouth. He, he was pretty lucid. He, I don't think he'll ever write a loose email again now that these have come out through FOI. Uh, in one email, 11th of October, he referred to the silly John Adams report, and that was 16 days before that silly report triggered two parliamentary inquiries, right? So it's not that silly. Um, and then the last one was a comment, the very first comment ASIC made about John Adams was on the 5th of October, again Gervais Green, to the same Zoe Vieleris. Um This is what it said, unfortunately... We do have to be seen to take this guy more seriously than he and his website deserve. We have to be seen. And uh, the quote John Adams made, in res- in the, 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 the comment he made in response to that, he said, quote, It is remarkable that ASIC's first instinct is to consider its public image rather than address the substance of any criticism which it receives. It is clear that ASIC's primary focus is one of appearing to be an effective law enforcement agency rather than actually being an effective law law enforcement agency. Um, 
Look, this whole system needs a clean up, Craig, and there's lots we can do. This all has to come out. This all has to, the, the, these inquiries have to play out. We have to overhaul ASIC, etc. But we also need to provide a part of the financial system that is safe, is clean, provides services, and that's why the, the public bank, the People's Bank, is so important. Yeah, 200,000 victims. $40 billion. There's a problem here, Robbie. Yep. And, it's, and the other thing is that had over 40 years of economic rationalism where this stuff has been building up and building up, the, the caveat emptor, the well, buyer beware. That's where it came from, yep. Right, it's where it came from. You know, the bastardry that's involved in shutting down institutions to protect the general welfare because they want, they want to allow these, these people like Morrison, Scott Morrison, who openly boasted about caveat emptor, they want to shut down the idea of using government agencies to protect people, the vulnerable. Not everyone has a PhD in economics. No. Right? Not everyone can even use an ATM because they're not used to yeah. it. Right? Ask so, Angela Cramp. She can tell you the ones who can't and, use ATMs. And the point is that this is what the agencies are there for. They're not there to protect the big end of town. They're not there to protect those corporations that can afford to make sure they're doing the right thing. They're there to protect the victims, the ordinary people, 200,000 of them. And I think the Sterling First, uh, you know, 130 victims of Sterling First just shows how rotten the system is. And again, the caveat emptor principle where Scott Morrison and even this Labor government could have come in and said, yes, ASIC did wrong, we'll compensate you for they've washed their hands off. Yep. And that shows you how rotten both sides of politics are. Well, the, li- just... the previous Liberal government wouldn't uh, compensate Sterling First, yet when they got into two scandals just before they lost government, both of them involving young ladies, who were both Liberal Party staffers. That's the only comment I'll make about the the quality of their cases. These young ladies were both Liberal Party staffers, but the Brittany Higgins and Rochelle um, uh, Murray, I think her name is, um, cases were embarrassing to the government. One of them got a multi-million dollar payout compensation payout, no questions asked. One of them got a $750,000 compensation payout, no questions asked. Yet these elderly people who, none of them needed a compensation payout that big, it's just a few hundred thousand dollars max to save their homes, $18 million to save 130 people and the the Liberal government refused to do it and the current government, Stephen Jones, the Minister of the Albanese government in this regard, the Assistant Treasurer, he promised he was milking that they, would, that they would be included it. in the compensation yep. scheme, and now he said they won't be. Yep. Right, and this will never clean up that way, and that's why you got to sweep it all out. And we've got, we we can't we can't tolerate that. This is one area of society where we don't expect the standards of good regulation and good conduct. But people, it's like they've, they've become so used to being preyed on by predators, they think it's it's um, it's acceptable, and it's not. Okay, um, let's move on. To avert war, Australia must assert sovereignty. That could be a slogan, actually, Craig. Assert yeah. sovereignty to avert war. Um, and this is quite a... This is, this is a really, really... We might use that in Jan's campaign, actually. We might. Write that down. Let's make a note of it. I have. There. <laughs> Someone record this. <laughs> assert sovereignty to avert war. Um, the gl- there is a glaring symbol of the lack of Australia's national sovereignty right now, and that's Julian Assange. Um, no doubt. And we're going to come back to him in a minute. We'll end, we'll end on a, a good report on Assange. But 
the Assange case is tied up in all the other things we're doing in the foreign policy sphere. And I want to highlight a couple of things that really do show the lack of sovereignty in Australia. Because we're talking ourselves into a war, right? And you're thinking, you know, against our biggest trading partner. None of this makes sense from an Australian standpoint. None of it. Um, and so to see this clearly, look at what's happening in Australia right now with the visit of the Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi. And I think this is, this is remarkable. This guy is our best friend. Narendra Modi is suddenly our best friend. Look at the Prime Minister, the Premier of New South Wales. Everybody's fading him, massive crowds, etc. Um, why can't we do what we're doing for Modi for our biggest trading partner, China? And I'll tell you how much bigger it is. Our trade with India is about $40 billion, roughly, 40 to 50, somewhere in that order. Our trade with China is about $280 billion. Like, the, our country depends much, much more on a good relationship with China than it does... I'm glad we have a good relationship with India, but it depends much... More. So why can't we do that? Well, um, apparently, we're told we can't do that because China is a human rights abuser. China persecutes Muslims, we're told, right? China supports evil Russia. Putin is the same as Hitler, therefore Russia is as evil as Nazi Germany, and China supports that bad, bad China. Um, China is, you know, we have this thing called the rules-based order. Everyone hears every politician every second day talking about the rules-based order. China is undermining that through this thing called the BRICS. The BRICS is this counterpole to the Anglo-American rules-based order. China is undermining all that. That's why we can't be nice to China. But hang on. Everything that I just said applies also to India. Literally everything. India persecutes Muslims. Now, okay, before I get counterattack on this, I don't want to overstate that. Um, India has, there are Muslim-related issues in India. India has the biggest Muslim population in the world, actually. Um, 200 million people who are Muslims in India. But Narendra Modi has his own history of being complicit in certain attacks, actual attacks on Muslims. He does, right? Now, um, I'm not trying to make that the centerpiece of this discussion. I'm just, trying, I'm just raising those issues. People know there are, there are actual issues in contrast to the Uyghurs. Mm. The Uyghurs were being told are genocided, are being genocided, yet their population's gone up, their standard of living's gone up, etc. Yet it's genocide, it's a crime against humanity with no evidence whatsoever. Well, the and evidence is contrary. Have a look at our Citizens Insight program. Look at the interview you did with Jack, Jack James. James. Yep. And you'll see the evidence is completely falsified. I mean, the so-called evidence, there is none. In fact, it's the opposite. Well, so let's just assume, for, for today's purposes, that both countries have a Muslim issue. And that's what it is. Both countries have one. It's an issue. Or don't we have a problem with Aborigines? Or there's a uh, supposed problem with Aborigines? Isn't that why we're having a referendum, Robbie? Exactly. Isn't there some sort of problem there? Exactly, exactly. What about Russia? Well, guess what? India supports Russia too. In fact, India is pretty damn close to Russia and always has been. But, oh, China's bad when it's friends with Russia. India, nah, don't worry about it, mate. Who cares? Doesn't matter. Or the BRICS. The I in BRICS is India. <laughs> India is also part of the BRICS that's undermining the rules-based um, international order. So why are we kissing India's butt yet being obnoxious to our much, much more important trading partner, China? Well, there's only one reason. It's because we're not, doing, we're not making our own decisions in this country. We're doing the bidding 
of the United States and the United Kingdom who are trying to play off India and China against each other. This is balance of power politics. Via us, right? Um, And in doing so, keep keep, um, encroaching upon China's sovereignty, which is what's going to be leading us um, into a war. Now, speaking of war... I don't want to even play the clips, but we'll have some we'll have some of this stuff playing in the background. But nine Channel Nine on Sunday night on sixty minutes ran these two stories related to China and war. I don't usually listen to sixty minutes probably because I can't stand the level of propaganda. Yeah. Because what they do is they use catchwords, catchphrases is incredibly choreographed. Yeah. It's not an actual honest. How do you get a reporter standing on an, an equipment on an aircraft carrier? <laughs> I mean, how do you get? This that, little that twerp. That's someone's interest if he's, if he's doing that. Talking to you know the members of the Five Eyes. I mean, yep. how does that happen? It well, doesn't happen unless it happens top down from I'll the highest te- Exactly. Well, that's what I'm, I'm going to tell you how it happens. So here's, here's the nine media pushing this war on China agenda, even worse than Murdoch. Now, back in 20 years ago, when we invaded Iraq, the Murdoch media made that happen. Without the Murdoch media... Getting behind that war, it would never have happened, right? Mm. They were brutal and they were vicious and they were liars. And anyone that anyone who opposed the war, they were they were relentlessly attacked in the Murdoch media. And all 172 Murdoch papers around the world campaigned for that war, and we got that war. And if you ever think people like Andrew Bolt on Sky News are genuine, and you ever meet him, go and ask him what he thinks about the Iraq War. He'll defend it to this day. These people are scum, utter utter scum. They killed a million people, and they're proud of it. And they're the ones that are beating up the China War now. With the same people. But you're used to that with Murdoch. We expect that from Murdoch. Paul Keating, the former Prime Minister, has done these very prominent um, public interventions in the last few years. Mm. And both times he's ignored the Murdoch media. He's gone after the nine newspapers and the nine media. And the newspapers used to be called Fairfax. Because once upon a time they were different to Murdoch. Right? But on China, they've become more rabid than Murdoch. They've become worse. So how is this possible? Again, it's an example of our lack of sovereignty. And the key person is Peter Costello. Peter Costello is the chairman of the Nine Media Group now. That's the former right? treasurer. The former treasurer, yeah, Peter Costello. Right. So how does he, how do, he... He is connected into this network called the Australian-American Leadership Dialogue. And the way he's connected is this. Um, the Australian-American Leadership Dialogue, we've covered on the show last year, uh, it is, a, it is a, an annual talk fest between top Australian politicians and top American politicians, and they take turns between doing it in America or in Australia, and they have a gallery on their website, and we might, as we're talking, if we've got time, we'll put up some of these pictures. They have a gallery on their website, and you can see, you can recognise all the, the politicians regularly attending these events, and you might see Elbow there at a few of them. If you spend enough time in the gallery, you'll see a lot of people you recognise. Um, and... This is the most sophisticated, high-level foreign interference operation in Australia. And Paul Keating himself, when Donald Trump was elected um, that night, he was on ABC 7.30, and he was asked about Australia's relationship with the United States. And Keating said, look, when I was Prime Minister, this thing was set up called the Australian-American Leadership Dialogue. I never attended it, but all my friends, all my colleagues in the Labor Party who went along to it came back forelock-tugging, to the Americans, bowing and scraping to the Americans, and now they, they're like patriots to the United States. Um, and he saw that process happening then. So the guy who set that up in 1990 was a guy named Phil Scanlon. He was the head of Coca-Cola. But Phil Scanlon had been the political advisor to Peter Costello's father-in-law, who was a New South Wales liberal state politician named Peter Coleman. So 
his and he was a Cold War warrior. Where all commies are, all the commies are evil, and you know all the anti-commies were good, 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 right? So he was one of those people. Um, and his advisor, Phil Scanlon, when the Cold War ended, set up this Australian-American leadership dialogue with the explicit intention of trying to use it to tell the United States, "You must stay engaged in the Pacific." Right? We will be. We Australians are too scared without the United States around us. That's what the whole purpose of this was. Um, and it's been the most explicit foreign interference operation in Australia ever since. And like I said, Keating referenced it in the way he did back the night Trump got elected. Um, Phil Scanlon is no longer in charge of the Australian-American Leadership Dialogue. The new guy is Peter Costello's former advisor, Tony Smith, who was the advisor to Costello and then he became a member of Parliament in his own right and the Speaker before he quit last year. Um, so here's Costello is very close to these two people running this Australian-American Leadership Dialogue. He's the chair of the Future Fund, which puts a lot of our public monies into the US stock market, etc. And he's the chair of the Nine Group, pumping out the most ridiculous, over-the-top, pro-war propaganda you've ever seen. People around the world tweet about this. They see clips from these 60 Minutes shows in different countries, or they see them online, etc., and they, their jaws drop. They said, mm. what sort of war porn do the Australians get fed? Mm. And I replied, look, this is par for the course, right? We are being told to not just um, accept war, but almost want it, right? Um, that is an act of foreign interference, Craig. That means we don't have any sovereignty. And this is these are two examples of just in, in the small of how our country is being run because we don't have sovereignty. But what happens when we assert our sovereignty? Back to Assange. Sovereignty ultimately comes from the people, especially in a, in a proper nation-state republic. It comes from the people. We are witnessing an extraordinary, extraordinary process now because the Australian people have increasingly got behind the Assange issue. The longer it's dragged on, the more ridiculous it's got. And we are now seeing real breakthroughs, not out of the goodness of Anthony Albanese's heart, not out of the goodness of Peter Dutton's heart, but because the Australian people have got behind this issue, right? I just want to go through some of the examples of that. Um, in the last couple of months, the, the progress has been extraordinary. So when Charles was inaugurated in London, Albanese was over there. Albanese had been a member of the parliamentary friends for Assange group. But once he got elected prime minister, nothing. He said nothing. The only statement he'd made was, I don't practice, I don't do diplomacy with a megaphone, he said, right? Basically trying to say, oh, just, you know, hint that he might be doing something behind the scenes. That's the only comment he'd made. In London last month, or the month before, he did a six... For the coronation, was it? For the coronation. What did I say, inauguration? Yeah, Yeah, it's coronation. Coronation. <laughs> you don't all great kings. For this, he did a six-minute interview with the ABC. Three minutes, three of those minutes, he talked about Assange, and he reiterated his position that it's got to end. That same week, back here in Australia, Peter Dutton was on radio and asked about this, and he agreed with Anthony Albanese. Now, What's significant about that, Robin? You made the point at the time was that Albanese says, "Look, I'm over here for the coronation. It would be inappropriate for me to raise this issue at this time." Yeah, but he didn't, and that's the key here is that. He's felt the political heat that he had to make a comment on yep. Assange and he did so because it, it does cut two ways. If the British see him on television talking about the Assange case, yep. they say, well, this is very important that their Prime Minister's talking about this. We better pay attention. 
right? And that's the key here, is that this is no longer just something that they've been able to control Albanese to the point. Even though he said nothing right up until that point, he did come out in that and way. And even then, even then, the thing that I want the viewer to understand is he's not doing it out of the goodness of his heart. He's doing it because, because he, he knows he has to. to. The yeah. Australian people expect him to, right? And even Dutton, the same thing. Dutton, mate, Dutton would happily lead us to war and all these things, but he's learned a lot since these last elections and the way he's lost office and whatever. Um, and so for him to come out and support it on this issue, he has been one of the Assange haters all along, shows you the shifting sands. Now, Bob Carr, who is an Assange supporter... Though actually Bob Carr wrote a book 20, 10 years ago attacking Assange. He later became an Assange supporter, to his credit, and acknowledged he was wrong in attacking Assange. Um, Bob Carr made the comment that if the United States government ignores both Albanese and Dutton, which is now a bipartisan position, he said that means they'll be treating us with contempt and as a client state. And that was quite an explosive statement. Um, well, would you worry? We already saw that with the Inorcus announcement, you know, where Paul Keating says, well, who was a mug, who was a mug that was you know, paying the bills? There's three people there. One of us is paying us. Yeah, us. I mean, <laughs> our guy. Client state. Yeah, exactly. Now, this last week, because the quad was on, and it, which has been cancelled, of course, but the quad was supposed to be held here in Australia, um, Stella Assange, Julian's wife, came to Australia for the first time. And she said, actually, she said she'd hoped to come to Australia for the first time with Julian. But she came to Australia uh, on her own. She has, people might have noticed this, she's dominated the news cycle, right? She was on the National Press Club on Monday, ABC 7.30 on Monday night. Um, she was in Parliament. We'll put up a couple of interesting pictures here. Look at these pictures of the, there's a, there's, a, there's a picture of a lot of parliamentarians in a room listening to her speak. And then, and then that group of parliamentarians, and you can even see um, Barnaby um, in the group and Andrew Wilkie in that walking as a large group behind her. Stella's very short. The, the blonde woman um, to her right is uh, Jen Robinson, Julian Assange's lawyer. Um, but that was a show of support in the parliament, very, very large. Um, uh, Andrew Wilkie asked Albanese a question in question time, saying, why haven't you met Stella? Now, Anthony, he doesn't like those kind of questions, but the way he answered it was actually quite interesting. And he, he went out of his way to say, he appreciates this is now a bipartisan position, right? So he acknowledged Peter Dutton's support on this, right? Um, and he said, look, it is, it is um, uh, complex, but we're, we're making our, our, um, our position known. And then there were these big rallies. Now, I was at the one in, I, I came back from Queensland via Sydney on Saturday and stopped there just for this rally. It was really, really big. And then they, I was up the front and they needed someone to talk and they threw, I, I, they threw the mic at me. Everyone else took a step back. <laughs> no, no. Uh, Rain um, uh, uh, Sinclair, who's um, one of the cam Assange campaigners, does a brilliant job. I take you know shout out to Rain. I take my hat off to her. They did need someone to fill in uh, the speak for to, to to help kill time. So she said, "Oh, can you give a speech?" Um, so I gave a speech on sovereignty um, to that to that audience, um, and I wasn't able to be there for the one yesterday. But the one yesterday, a midweek. This was a huge midweek event. I want to put the photo up of. Um, the speakers, where you can see David McBride, you can see uh, Gabriel Shipton, John Shipton, uh, Stella, etc. Um, and it was a really big crowd. And they, then they marched through the streets of Sydney behind this very big banner that um, Stella was helping to hold. And this has become... I mean, these things show that the, the groundswell of support from the Australian people is now overwhelming. Mm. And that's why our politicians are moving. But the question of sovereignty, Craig, is still there. It's so obvious because... 
Bob Carr is right. Everyone in Australia is now saying release that guy, but it's up to our two dangerous allies. And they, they, look, they may be moving behind the scenes as we speak. I think something's going on, I don't know. But we haven't seen it yet, right? And the fact that that's the case shows you what they think of our sovereignty. They know they own us. They can play the draw-out game, Robbie. I'll just keep dragging it out, dragging it out and dragging it out. But see, what people have to understand, these things, they do take some time, Yeah. right? But unless the pressure's kept on and that we keep putting the pressure on, then nothing will happen. And there's a good chance that we're on the cusp of a breakthrough, but you don't take the pressure off now. No. You keep loading up, which is why Andrew Wilkie was right to ask Elbow that question in Parliament this week. Final comment, this is great progress. We have to make sure it includes the other cases, the other Assange-type cases. And the two I want to highlight are David McBride, who is there at every event supporting Julian Assange. But Julian Assange is going to be free sooner sooner or later. I've no doubt about that. David McBride faces court later this year and a 50-year jail sentence for exposing war crimes, for doing the right thing. Everyone should stay supporting of him. Um, look him up on your go on his GoFundMe, etc. If you can support him that way, uh, so that's one case. The other one is Dan Duggan. So Dan Duggan's the American who's in solitary confinement in Lismore Jail simply because what he did more than ten years ago as a pilot trainer. Now that the Americans want to create, start a war with China, they're trying to make every contact with China criminalised, and he's been caught up under that. Nicholas Cowdery, the former director of the public prosecutions in New South Wales, has come out and said it's ridiculous. Like, he could, even if he should go through the extradition thing, he should be at home under house arrest with an ankle bracelet or something. Instead, they got him locked down in solitary confinement in Lismore Jail for no good reason except to punish, make an example of him, scare everybody else about on anything to do with China, right? Make us all afraid so we don't speak out like you and I are now, right? So don't forget those two guys. Stay behind the Assange campaign. Get behind McBride and the um, Dan Duggan campaigns. I look at this photo, Robbie, that you showed before, the politicians walking behind Stella. That's a very important photo because the issue here is our sovereignty. And it's good to see that there's some parliamentarians, politicians, that are prepared to stand up on this issue. Because I know the public gets very cynical about politicians. Oh, there's no good ones in, so forth. Well, if there's a... If they only stand up on one issue and it's sovereignty, right, and we don't necessarily agree with them like we don't with Paul Keating on many issues, in fact we blame yeah. him for a lot of our problems, then that just shows you the, the, the nature of the politics and that there is, there is things we can work with people on. Well, Craig, it's actually a really good point because if you don't have sovereignty, who cares if you have disagreements? You're not making the decisions. That's right. It's the reason sovereignty is the most important issue is so you can have those disagreements later because whoever wins out of those disagreements, those decisions are being made here, right? Yeah. And when it comes to war, when it comes to banking, these sort of things, we don't have any sovereignty. That's why that's the principle to fight for um, above all. And it also creates a rallying point, Robbie, against this, the, the, the terrible corruption you've, you've, we've talked about yeah. in ASIC and APRA and you know, the banks and so forth. You start to see this sort of fight around principle, then that immoralises people more and more and it's very dangerous for those criminals and those people that want to try and sweep things under the rug like the ASIC people are doing and APRA is doing as well because the Australian people aren't going to tolerate it. If there's that quality of leadership there, and if Julian, when, when, when a Julian Assange comes home, he will be greeted as a hero and consequently that will change political geometry in this and country. Gonna, and I'm going to ask for a meeting with him and say, now, Julian, you've changed the world. 
um, help us leak the truth about the Australian financial system. <laughs> All right, Craig, been a great discussion. Thanks, thanks very for much for joining us. Yeah, thanks, thanks to the uh, viewer, as always, for tuning in. Um, the, the deadline, I should mention this, for the submissions we asked people to make on an emergency basis to the AUKUS-related legislation going through Parliament is effectively ended, so we'll, we'll report later how that's gone. Um, but stay up, stay up to date as much as you can with these issues, especially the Assange campaign, because I do think we're probably on the cusp of a breakthrough. And look for every opportunity to help um, contribute to that campaign. Yep. Um, and, uh, yeah, thanks to the viewer. Tune in next week for more of the Citizens Report. Authorised by Robert Bowick, Citizens Party, Melbourne.